The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to Tech Sequences. On December 23, 2015, Kyiv and a large swath of Western Ukraine were plunged into darkness for nearly six hours. Cunning saboteurs had taken control of the facility's supervisory control and data acquisition systems, Muscata, and open breakers at some 30 distribution substations to leave over 230,000 customers with that electricity and all that it powered in the dead of winter. The attack was carefully planned as later analysis showed that network and systems were compromised as early as eight months before when an employee opened an innocuous looking Excel attachment of an email. Attributed to Sandworm, a Russian cyber military unit of the GRU, the organization in charge of military intelligence, the attack took place in the context of an ongoing Russo-Ukrainian conflict, which has started with the Russian annexation of Crimea in February of 2014. It was the first publicly acknowledged successful cyber attack on a power grid. As a result of this and other Russian cyber excursions, Ukraine has emerged as an important testing ground for cyber warfare capabilities for both sides. Why? Because Ukraine's infrastructure is similar to its allies in Europe and North America, but it has far fewer resources than the wealthier Western states for counterattack. Consequently, US and EU allies have provided technology and expertise to combat both physical and cyber threats, engaging in a proxy war with Russia in the process. But more importantly, Ukraine has also become ground zero for a new kind of war, a hybrid war that blends conventional warfare and cyber warfare with tactics such as propaganda, fake news, and even foreign electoral intervention. What is uncertain is who will emerge victorious and whether victory in one theater helps to cement victory in the other. What is certain, though, is that both sides of the conflict now rely on a vast array of technologies and their defensive and offensive strategies with potential consequences for how conflicts may be waged or won in this new age. Our guest today is Chuck Brooks. Chuck is president of Brooks Consulting International and adjunct faculty at Georgetown University's Applied Intelligence Program. He was named by LinkedIn as one of the top five tech people to follow. Amongst other honors, Thomson Reuters recognized Chuck as a top 50 global influencer in risk compliance, and IFSEC recognized him as the number two global cybersecurity influencer. He has served in executive positions by appointment under two U.S. presidents, most notably as the first legislative director of the Science and Technology Directorate at DHS. Welcome, Chuck. Thank you. It's great to be here. As Alexa mentioned in the opener, Ukraine was the first victim of a successful cyber attack on a power grid all the way back in 2015. But it has managed to thwart Russian attacks most recently in April of this year. What lessons did Ukraine learn from the 2015 attack in protecting its critical infrastructure? And are these lessons that we, as Ukraine's allies, should heed? I think they learned a lot of lessons uh, from that attack and also the invasion in Crimea. Um, one of the things they did is they, they did outreach to uh, a lot of the allies, particularly the, the British and the United States, who actually uh, surveyed um, the, the landscape and ecosystem there for 
for cyber attacks, particularly on critical infrastructure, and brought in a lot of uh, technology and tactics they're using now. I think the Russians were actually surprised. They, they did unleash a fury of attacks initially, and uh, they're largely unsuccessful. I mean, as you said in the opening, it was not just on, on taking down critical infrastructure, but it's also on influence operations uh, through media and, 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 and false uh, uh, information. But uh, I think uh, Ukraine has, has performed remarkably well, and, and for most experts, unexpectedly well. So what is the relationship of the Russian state to some of the hacking gangs that are credited with the attacks, such as Sandworm? Well, they're, they're directly underneath them. I mean, they operate semi-independently, but with, with, uh, with the coordination of GRU and, and with uh, uh, Russian intelligence across the board. Um, they've been used uh, globally to attack critical infrastructure, heavily involved in ransomware, particularly that they pay their own way. Uh, and so it's really a sort of a dual operation. They're, they're criminal gangs that, that profit on their activities, but they're also endorsed and supported by the, the Russian government. Um, the Russian government has been successful to some extent with having, well, launching some disinformation campaign inside of Russia um, and also abroad to, to create this false narrative that, you know, they really need to save Ukraine, that Ukraine is um, governed, you know, by a Nazis regime. Um, but they are facing resistance. There's a number of um, hacktivist organizations uh, on the other side in, you know, of, of Sandworm that are trying to combat this um, disinformation, um, maybe br- bringing down Russian websites, um, even government pages to some you know, streaming services. Um, how did these hacktivist you know, resistance campaigns come about and how successful have they been? Well, it's, it's really a fascinating uh, uh, thing to explore. It's all decentralized. So I don't think there's one coordinating arm. You have a variety of different groups, including Anonymous and everyone participating. Basically, it was an open call uh, by the Ukrainians, help, you know, we, we need it. And a lot of IT experts and a lot of, uh, you know, both the white hat and black hack activists uh, got involved. And you're right, they have been somewhat successful in, in being a nuisance to, to Russia. Um, they've also, uh, I think more importantly, have got the information across because Russia, you know, guards its internet and doesn't try and tries to control information. But they've been able to, to breach this, particularly in the media sense. And I think uh, a lot of the other thing that's really sort of uh, impacted this kind of conflict is, is that a lot of people now have other means of communication, particularly cell phones. And uh, through use of, of uh, uh, encryption, through Signal and others, they've been able to get messages through. So I think the propaganda came, game uh, by the Russians has, has, has been uh, undermined uh, by some of these activities. And also by, uh, you know, the instant uh, show of pictures of what the brutality is happening and the rape and the murder of civilians have, have uh, made it its way, not just to the globe, but also across the border to Russia. And also, I think one other factor is that a lot of uh, families who, who didn't know what's happening and all of a sudden see their, their sons, mostly sons, some daughters, uh, uh, in, uh, conscripted and going to a war unprepared and are give, being fed false information. Now they're able to get some of the truth. Yeah, I think that the, the use of cell phones has really played a huge role in this war. Yeah, I think that portends to what it might happen in, in future conflicts. Too. You know, uh, uh, being at the edge, being able to uh, be in the battlefield and, and communicate. And, and it's worked both ways. It's also exposed a lot of, uh, I think the, the Russians, some of them relied on the Ukrainian uh, internet using their cell phones and gave away their positions, particularly senior colonels and generals and were uh, targeted because of that. 
But I think there's ways of obviously encrypting messages uh, openly. And uh, the fact, again, that, you know, you could be uh, have your your uh, network taken down like they did take down a Viasat satellite, the Russians did, and they thought it would incur much uh, more damage. But of course, uh, um, that was replaced with other satellites um, pretty quickly, but also by uh, the ability to communicate on the ground through cell phones. They're still able to, to determine where positions were. They knew the territory, so that gave the Ukrainians an inherent advantage, uh, being knowing, knowing where to go and, and how to do it and how to communicate. So Ukraine, uh, prior to uh, the war, prior to the start of the war, had taken some steps. For example, they had moved a lot of their information to the cloud. Since Crimea, Ukraine learned a couple of lessons, which it seems that they applied. So on the one hand, what were the lessons that Ukraine learned and uh, how effective has that been? Uh, because you know, so far, Russia has not been successful, thus, that successful thus far. And the other uh, hand, did we overestimate Russia's cyber capability? We're always talking about Russia, China, and um, their, you know, their, their uh, capabilities in launching cyber warfare. Did we overestimate that? Two good questions. You know, I, I think, uh, first, I think the biggest lesson they learned is third-party hosting. They hmm. didn't have to host it on their own networks. And of course, that gives it much more protection uh, when you're using third-party networks actually out of the country. So it makes it much more difficult for the for the Russians to target. Even when they take out cell towers and stuff, they still have access to the internet. Um, so it made it much more of a problematic uh, uh, tactic for the, for the Russians to really take down the communication system. I also think one factor is too, I think that the, the Russians initially thought it'd be a much quicker war and wanted to leave some of the infrastructure in, in place. So they, they did go in, they did do these attacks, but they didn't go in uh, with the full kinetic and attack ability that, that probably they needed. They thought it would be over. They thought Zelensky would leave, that the government would fall, and they'd take it over in a few days, and they didn't need to commit the resources. So that leads into your second question. Uh, I think it's dangerous to underestimate the Russian capabilities. Um, you know, you're really talking about two, two primary adversaries that have tremendous capabilities, one being the Chinese and another being the Russians, and they operate differently. The Russians, as you mentioned earlier, operate a lot through these criminal gangs who are quite talented. And they have uh, strong ransomware capabilities. They've got into solar winds. They've been colonial pipeline. Others allegedly, if we, you know, we haven't proved it 100. But so I think you know they're in a probably inside of our critical infrastructure in some ways. Uh, so I wouldn't underestimate them. I think they still have capabilities. Again, you know, uh, there's a lot of them, and I think they just operate differently. They're much loosely operated. They're not like the Chinese. Is a different situation where the military is directly involved in a huge way and trained and focused on cybersecurity. Uh, the Russians are, are sort of uh, freelancing in a sense. Uh, they do have some capability, obviously, for, for military capabilities too, but uh, their, their, their attention is, is in a different direction. So another surprising way in which mobile phones have played a significant role in this war, I think, is, is the way in which Zelensky himself has used it you know, to stay in touch with world leaders um, and, and you know, really has made it almost a, almost a social media having a social media offense, which is completely different from the, you know, expect him to pack up his bags and leave and then, you know, roll through Kiev on day two. Um, what are some of the other surprising ways in which technology is being used in this, in this war, like facial recognition to break through the Iron Curtain to reach Russian families of soldiers who were killed in conflict? Or what is what surprised you the most and why? Well, you just named, you just named one of them. The facial recognition aspect is, is certainly... Uh, it's been used uh, in a bad way by the Chinese in Hong Kong to uh, identify protesters. But in this sense, it's really being used to 
communicate facts on the ground to to Russians and to be able to target to the, to the family. So, I mean, that he has a, has a play in psychological warfare too. Uh, also, the use of deep fakes. We saw a fake a deep fake of, of Zelensky recently that was this pretty interesting, and it shows the capability that you know you cannot trust the media. Uh, you know, nowadays it's going to get worse because the capabilities are out there for a lot of people to do it. Um, and you just mentioned, I, you know, I had said that the, the social media aspect of Zelensky. Um, I think the interesting thing, he comes from a performing background and, uh, you know, comedian, and he's really taken advantage of that. And he also did show his bravery initially. He didn't leave. You know, I thought he would. So I, I think he even as his opposition parties joined with him. So I think, uh, you know, there, there's something we said about leadership and social media combined. And, you know, we just don't see it so much in the West. <laughs> so I think everyone is, is really impressed with someone who's shown bravery and the ability to communicate, um, you know, coherently. Uh, so I think, you know, if you took a poll, probably a lot of Americans and Western Europeans would say this guy would be a, a perfect leader. <laughs> you mentioned that um, that Russia and Chinese operate differently and that Russia has these, you know, criminal gangs. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, is Russia sort of recruiting some of these criminal gangs or are these criminal gangs already there and just operating with uh, Russia as a nation state turning a blind eye or is, or Russia as a nation state kind of directing or incentivizing some of their activities. How does that ecosystem work within Russia? Yeah. Well, I, I think, first of all, you have to be blessed uh, to operate in, in that way inside Russia if you're uh, by Putin, uh, mm. no matter what you do at that kind of uh, capacity because implications. And I'm sure he's got a profited on some of their financial uh, dealings, too. Uh, but I think probably, and, and what I've seen in, in, in open, you know, uh, intelligence reports is that, that they're assigned a GRU of people to help work with them and they're given support with some of the COBOL, uh, you know, type capabilities. Wow. Uh, so they're, they're supported, um, you know, by military intelligence and, and, and other intelligence, probably KGB too. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, you know, the, again, but, you know, they're, they're, uh, it's sort of like the oligarchs in a sense, they do their own thing, but they're part of it. And, uh, you know, uh, that's just the way the Russian structure is, you know, um, it's very decentralized in that sense, except uh, when it goes to, comes to the leadership in Putin, when you need something, then you follow those orders or else. And in this case, they followed the orders. I don't think there's any been any, um, you know, uh, of these groups that have pulled out. I think they, they, they strongly support uh, Putin. It's interesting because there was a recent uh, research by BBC News that said, uh, citing research from Chain Analysis, saying that 74% of the money made from ransomware somehow finds its way to Russia. Um, and what you're saying is that, yes, there's definitely a symbiotic relationship there, potentially uh, with not just you know giving orders and directing it, but also profiting uh, from it somewhat handsomely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, if you look at it as a resource, you know, there's, there's obviously minerals and bricks and mortar opportunities for organized crime, but you know, this is this is this is organized crime, but you know the government is part of it. So, uh, and there's there's plenty of money to be made, and, and who knows how much actually millions have been really paid. Uh, mm. Most most companies don't disclose it uh, what they paid, and uh, you know they've been able to operate this way, and, and, and probably even have their own banks for it. So, uh, you know, and, and then I think the biggest thing is, of course, you know, cryptocurrency uh, has changed the game. They're able to get paid without being traced as easily. Uh, so um, it's it's really been. Uh, no surprise that ransomware has really become a weapon of choice for a lot of these uh, state hackers, particularly in Russia. If we think that 
this war has been a little bit different because of the use of technology, because the internet is now critical infrastructure that the attacking uh, army may think twice about actually removing because they maybe want to keep some of it. And we look forward and think, what do we think this has done in terms of changing the face of the use of technology in, in wars going forward? Not, not that I hope there will be wars going forward, but apparently, apparently we are not yet living in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, there's, there's a the misnomer that a cyber attack can take everything offline uh, very easily. It may be against a small, unprotected country. It could. Uh, however, uh, it's uh, cyber warfare is integral, just as, as information warfare is in any campaign, even more so now. And if you look at the the, the nature of multi-domain warfare, where you're, you're, you're communicating between tanks and, and, and uh, artillery and planes and helicopters, it's critical now. And a lot of the disruption that's happened is happened in those communication pathways. So I think this is a real lesson for, for military planners. And I think the other thing is, is drones. Drones often done through GPS system through the internet. Uh, so uh, you, you, they're launching sophisticated I mean, attacks against uh, with very cheap equipment against and taking out tanks and, and armored personnel vehicles uh, fairly easily with, uh, you know, without spending a lot of money. So in uh, uh, not having a, a trained capability. So uh, I think that 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 notion is going to definitely change how we, uh, you know, the tactics of how we fight the war. Again, this is a different kind of situation where you have a, a very motivated populace defending its, its own turf and, and knowing its own turf. Um, and, and, and most of the, of the world doesn't support, you know, what Russia is doing, except for, you know, a few of its uh, allies and in, in, in the <laughs> that and the. In this sort of nefarious sense. Yeah, and the the internet technology group really has rallied around the keep the keep the keep the lines open, if you will. I mean, I know um, and Slovenian friends that are participating in making sure to get the equipment to into Ukraine needed to resplice the the cables that are torn out and so on and so forth. So there's there's a lot of sympathetic support for for keeping the infrastructure up, which I think has been helpful and a yeah, sign yeah, of where yeah. sympathies lie. Yeah. Also, I think in some sense that united NATO to include the, also the Nordic countries. Uh, this is really sort of a, a change the dynamic. You know, I think everyone's watching, they're learning. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a really a new era. We certainly have moved to the digital age. You know, the, the nature of warfare is different. You know, it, it's not uh, Iraq or Afghanistan in that sense, uh, where you're, you're fighting a mountainous and a desertous war. You're fighting urban war uh, with some country. Uh, sides too, but uh, it's more like a European theater uh, was in World War II, but with different tactics. So it's it's really interesting from a, a, a national security military sense, but also for the use of, of the communications and, and targeting with GPS, with satellites, with uh, on the ground systems, uh, and, and and technological sophistication. So you, it's I think it's it's really a, a preview of what's going to come, and I think you'll see more advanced things. You'll see a lot more probably robotics in the next few years because uh, the Tanks have been obliterated, uh, very, very vulnerable, as have a lot of helicopters and other other things. So you're going to see also much more drone warfare, obviously, because it's effective. <laughs> it's also uh, very uh, good for special ops. So, um, you know, this is really an, a new era. So I think when you look back, what's going to happen? I think the only question is really how long does this go on? I mean, you have, uh, I think, uh, now a, a sort of resurgence of the Ukrainian capabilities that we resupply them. And, and more technical support. And as you mentioned with uh, uh, a large uh, new influx of, of more sophisticated capabilities and weapons going to Ukraine. Uh, and there's reports, at least from the British side, that a lot of their, their actually uh, conventional 
uh, weaponry is 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 now being used as dumb bombs because they've lost the the chips mm-hmm. and everything else that they had to to operate. So the the nature of the the conflict may be changing quicker for Russia than they thought. So I wonder if there's lessons here for us because uh, we for years the U.S. and allies we've been spending money on conventional warfare and you know nuclear nuclear is a deterrent, but conventional warfare. Um, if you think about the Iraq conflict or the Kuwait conflict. Um, just recently, I was at the Aspen Security Conference, and two comments sort of come to mind. One was from a four-star general. He said, in all his career, he never had to look up at the sky, to your point about drones. You know, now you have to look up at the sky. Uh, and second was, um, do we, it was a question basically saying, do we really need to spend money on, on aircraft carriers? They're so expensive. And as we saw with you know, the Ukrainian, Ukrainians bombing the Russian um, carrier. Is it better for us to kind of now take the lessons from this hybrid warfare and reallocate where we're spending our money and, and investments? Yeah, I mean, that, those are big questions. You know, I mean, uh, I, I think it's, it's you can't uh, draw complete lessons. I mean, there is no air superiority uh, uh, shown by the Russians, which is totally surprising in my in my perspective. They do have pilots and capabilities, but I guess they just were not well trained and uh, weren't prepared. Um, but uh, um, I think our Air Force is much more prepared, much more uh, uh, experienced in, in these kind of targeted bargain bombings and with uh, with uh, smart munitions, etc. Than, than the Russians are. So I think you know that 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 part of the, our, uh, our our force will be probably be enhanced. You're right about the Navy. I mean, huge aircraft carriers. Although China just built one, the biggest in the world. Um, you know, they're, they're, maybe they're, they're too vulnerable, you know, uh, uh, targets. And, and maybe we ought to look at back at, at, at prepositioning and basing again, you know, with our allies is, is a major uh, tactic. There's a whole lot of lessons to come out of this, you yeah. know, and I guess that's going to be the, you know, the tank warfare. I don't think they're obsolete. I just think they're being probably used in the wrong way. And, and I, I think that they just, the Russians made themselves sitting ducks. But, uh, you know, I think there's also better armor and capabilities that we have now. That will, will change that that equation, but I mean a lot of this is all probably being looked at right now by the the, you know, the military and the planners for the next conflict. They always look, and and, and usually you fight the last war, uh, but yeah. this is probably more of a, a, a focus on future war. You know, and I think particularly the ability to take down networks, uh, communication networks, and, and then also contemplate, um, you know, what cell phones may uh, use may play, uh, whether they're used to identify or whether they're used to communicate. So there's. There's a lot, of, a lot of new variables. And then finally, what you said is satellite. You know, we have now yeah. uh, the ability to look at every inch of the earth uh, through satellites. Uh, will that be the next battleground? Could the Chinese theoretically take out our, uh, our, our lower orbiting satellites and make us totally blind? I mean, you know, and, and then hypersonic weapons too, which is right. a really scary aspect. You know, this is, this is a, a, you know, a rough era for, for national security. Any way we look at it, you know, uh, you know, Russia and China are, are more allied and, and, uh, very capable, you know, and, and and I think now the West really has to rethink its fact that, uh, uh, you know, security should not be as much of a priority, but it is, it should be a priority. It should be really more just about how, how we do it. Mm-hmm. So we spent a lot of time over the last couple of decades sort of demilitarizing or de- bringing, bringing technology into, into the commercial space that had previously only been used for military, like geolocation and so on and so forth. Um, do you think that Given that this is, you know, the use of cell phones has been a dead giveaway for the locations of some of the generals, given that fitness watches in a different context have been a giveaway for the location of, you know, deep secret 
American planning exercises or whatever, do you think that there's going to be a push to take some of the technology that's in commercial space and try to put it back, put, put it back in the cookie jar and, and stop its use commercially? Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, it's already out of the bag. And, and, and again, these companies are not prohibited from doing it. Uh, but I do think there's now going to be a, a, a look from the government, and there is, there's evidence this already, uh, to look for more innovation from the private sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some more expertise in a lot of these areas and capabilities, particularly in algorithms and, and some of the stuff they're doing with next-gen uh, stuff, you know, from the, from the Googles and Microsofts and, and others. And a lot of the smaller companies really have more of the innovation. So I think you're going to see a, a more of a partnership uh, in, in, in the future. And again, uh, the, the technology is already out there. And we're not the only ones that have it. Uh, there, you know, there's some new breakthroughs like like hypersonics. Hopefully, we do have that capability too. But uh, you know, when with satellites, but uh, you know, technology, emerging technology, and in, in particularly where we're investing heavily is artificial intelligence. So I can imagine, you know, a lot in the next battlefield being directed by computers and also being directed by by robots uh, fighting war too. So. Um, you know, it's, it's getting closer to Star Trek. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's kind of scary, though, because if you think about like quantum computing, one of the problems is that um, with advanced in quantum computing, com- you know, pair that with AI. Now, all of a sudden, our encryption is in question, right? Our, our encryption methodologies can't cannot withstand it. NIST, I think, just announced like four separate um, algorithms that can withstand, um, you know, quantum computing. But is that... Is that a problem that we'll be continually chasing? Yeah, well, I think we are closer to quantum computing than we thought we were uh, a few years ago. You know, and there's also different types. I mean, I saw a, a demonstration today of photonic computer, a quantum computer that actually operates. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily need you need all the, the qubits of a you know a, you know big massive computer to do this. So yeah, that you you say a good thing. I mean, all that the stolen files we have from OPM, the, the China, and all the other IP that they have, they can't decrypt yet, they eventually will be able to do it. So I think whoever dominates artificial intelligence and quantum technologies will dominate the world in the future. And that's why I think you see the Chinese investing so much into it. And yes. I think we're starting to you know, wake up. It was just a few years ago where we, we said we needed an artificial initiative or intelligence initiative in DOD. We hadn't really done it publicly. We had DARPA and other things, but now we're, we're investing more uh, both from the government and the private sector. And I think uh, it's gonna not just be the United States, it has to be the allies involved too. Uh, who have capabilities on those areas too, and, and share mm-hmm. that share knowledge. I, I wonder um, there's if there's other consequences as well. I mean, if you think about all the data that we share uh, willingly, or at least unknowingly, right? I shouldn't say willingly, maybe unknowingly. You know, we do a 23ME swab, right? All of a sudden, our DNA is out there, and a, a potential consequence. Not that I want to plant it in anybody's mind, is that. Um, you know, what if that DNA information uh, could be used to target better biological weapons, biological weapons that can be more effective? I mean, Russians, there's a lot of fear that Russians are going to use biological weapons against uh, the Ukrainians, if not, you know, outright nuclear. What's your view? Well, you know, when I was ever at DHS initially, a biological weapons were, were one of the biggest concerns, largely because of the destructive nature, other than nuclear. I mean, they're it. Pandemics are mm-hmm. it. And we saw now with COVID, uh, how quickly it can spread. You know, we were looking at more traditional things back then, but um, in, in, in question what you're saying, I mean, COVID may actually be that type of weapon. It affected older people uh, much mm. more. Um, you know, it, it may, you know, you can, you can, uh, you know, make it uh, use genomics and other things now to, to adapt it to people who have certain characteristics. So 
I'm real fearful of that. And I'm very fearful of, of, uh, of it getting out in Russia and getting it out in, in another conflict, um, you know, because it can be deadly and it will spread. And I think uh, the, part of the problem with Russia using it, of course, it would probably spread back to Russia. So I think uh, they have to think long and hard before doing right. that. Um, you know, but it is a it is a very dangerous area of of weaponry, uh, a silent weaponry that you know now we have the capability to to release it. It can be prepositioned somewhere. Um, do a lot of damage. So uh, I'm fearful of it. So what do you think are the main lessons here from this war that we should take forward in, in our own preparation as a nation and also in terms of, you know, individual companies within, within the country? Yeah, well, I think there's several lessons. One is, is that national security or security in general, because we're talking about global security, is integral uh, to, to our way of life. And we can't ignore it. Um, because not everyone out there is, is sure thinking as we are. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll take advantage of it. Uh, the Chinese have shown it over and over uh, in expansion, and now Russia has too. Uh, and they're not the only ones. So I think by, by investing in our capabilities, it's a good thing. And the second part of that capability is, is it's not, not what it was 20 years ago. That we have to look forward uh, to, to artificial intelligence, to quantum, uh, to using 5G, uh, to all the different aspects of, of capabilities involved with emerging technologies that need to be not only uh, part of our, our national security, but has to be also integrated in our economy. And, and, and it's, it's certain, I think, what, what we've learned, you know, digital transformation is here. We found it out through COVID. We started remote work. Uh, more and more people are growing up on their phones uh, and learning from the internet than ever before. And, and it's, it's, it's a new phenomena that's going to get bigger and bigger as we get more and more connectivity and faster connectivity. Uh, so uh, but the lessons here is that, you know, we have to change our, 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 our national security policy to look at emerging technologies as being vital to it, uh, mm-hmm. a vital cog of, of investment and, and research. And, and, and the second part, I think, is the public-private partnership needs to be expanded uh, we have a lot of innovation programs now at DOD, but not enough. And same should be off with the IC, and there are some. Uh, but uh, I think it needs to be more of a fundamental uh, approach to to working with the, the commercial sector because a lot of the commercial critical infrastructure really is owned by the private sector, and yeah. that's the first thing to be targeted in any kind of conflict. So I think you know if you're looking at now the the zero trust initiative that just came out of government is a good one, and I think that's a lesson too that I think really is is partially. Uh, pushed up because of this, because we realize the vulnerabilities we have from legacy systems and all that's there, and we don't know what we have. So I think part of it is taking accountability, learning it, and and getting security up front. And I think we're doing that now. And uh, you know, the other thing is that you know we're, we're the communication capabilities uh, are certainly uh, different now than they were five years ago. Uh, everyone has instant communication, the ability to to communicate securely, even if you're a citizen and not involved in the military or in intelligence. Uh, so you can you can send something encrypted. You can you, your civilians are part of the front line now, in a sense, um, you know. And so and, and and not only documenting atrocities, but also the ability to show what's really happening uh, in real time. So I think all those have to be taken in in, in, in uh, consideration as we move into the next era, you know. And that again, the things we mentioned, of course, you know, hypersonics and and, and better um, air capabilities, more drones, uh, robotic warfare, artificial intelligence. All of them need to be really fundamentally uh, part of our national security strategy. So it's really a brave new world, and we really must not click on that link to a fake Excel file. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it is a brave new world, and and, and we all do click <laughs> on the wrong things, unfortunately. And still fishing is still a problem, but but you know at least we get a redundancy, and uh, like uh, you know like you know, they've also done in Ukraine with some of the cyber. Um, but we need to really plan. I think you know uh, the, the the best thing about uh, being stronger is is planning uh, and having a risk management plan. And uh, you know I think the Ukrainians have demonstrated some of it uh, with with particularly in the cyber realm, and and we need to take heed to that, and we have to have a redundancy plan too. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for the excellent questions. Thank you so much, Jack. It was a pleasure. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.